Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasting. Roses are red, violets are blue. We have something dark planned for you. We're glad you're back for the dessert portion of our not-so-sweet sweethearts date this Valentine's Day. If you're a dessert-first kind of person, some of the best podcasts in the Darkcast Network joined us to share some true crime stories during the dinner portion of our series. Be sure to go back and indulge in those tales. So grab that box of chocolates or decadent lava cake and dig in while more of our podcasters share their spooky Valentine's Day stories. Hey, hey, I'm Autumn from Autumn's Oddities Podcast, a proud member of the Darkcast Network. Today's case actually takes us to the beautiful shores of Key West for a really grotesque crime. So I'm sure that you've heard of the Tim Burton animated film Corpse Bride. But did you know that there is a very real case that involved an unwilling corpse bride and a necromancer? When I say unwilling, um, I mean that this poor woman had no clue what was going to happen to her body after she died. And she certainly would not have been okay with what Carl Tanzler did to her. So who was Carl Tanzler? Well, the life of Carl Tanzler began on February 8th, 1877 in Dresden, Germany. He was born as Carl with a K Tanzler or George Carl Tanzler. So there's not much information about his early life up until his teen slash early adult years. After graduating from a medical university, he left for Australia, where during World War I, he somehow ended up in an internment camp. After the war, former prisoners were not allowed to stay in the country, so he was deported to Holland. Around 1920, he married Doris Ann Schaefer. Together, they had two children, Aisha Tanzler, born in 1922, and Crystal Tanzler, born in 1924. So, Tanzler saw no prospects in post-war Europe, so he decided to immigrate to the States, and his sister actually already lived in Florida. So, Tanzler immigrated to the U.S. in 1926. He sailed from Rotterdam on February 6th to Havana, Cuba. From Cuba, he settled in Zephyr Hills, Florida, and he moved in with his sister. Carl was later joined by his wife and two daughters that same year. So, when he submitted documents for U.S. citizenship, he called himself Carl Tanzler von Kossel. This was not an accidental name choice. Uh, Tanzler loved telling the story that he supposedly had a relative, Countess von Kossel, during his childhood in Germany and later again traveling briefly through Genoa, Italy. Carl claimed that he had been visited by this dead ancestor. Her full name was Countess Anna Constantia von Kossel, and she revealed to him the face of his true love, an exotic, dark-haired woman. The woman was supposed to become the love of his life. Well, in 1927, for whatever reason, probably his delusions of grandeur, Carl abandoned his wife and children in Zephyr Hills to move to Key West, Florida. Once there, he got a job as an x-ray technician in the Marine Hospital on Key West. Old Carl also decided that he wanted to completely reinvent himself, and so he changed his name to Carl Von Kossel. Carl worked for several years in a hospital that was full of patients sick and dying from tuberculosis. On April 22, 1930, while working in that marine hospital in Key West, Tanzler met Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos, a local Cuban-American woman who had been brought to the hospital for an examination by her mother. And Carl claimed to have immediately recognized her as the beautiful, dark-haired woman that had been revealed to him in the visions from his ancestors. By all accounts, Elena was viewed as a local beauty in Key West. Elena was the daughter of a local cigar maker, Francisco Pancho Hoyos and Aurora Milagro. 
On February 18th of 1926, Elena married Luis Mesa, and he left her shortly after she miscarried the couple's child and moved to Miami. Elena was actually still legally married to uh, Luis at the time of her death. So Elena's life didn't really get any better from there, and she was eventually diagnosed with tuberculosis. Carl, with his self-professed medical knowledge, he attempted to treat and cure Elena with a variety of medicines, as well as x-ray and electrical equipment that he brought to uh, Elena's family home. It became clear that his interest in Elena was not just that of a medical provider treating a patient. Carl showered Elena with gifts of jewelry and clothing and allegedly professed his love to her, but no evidence ever surfaced to show that any of his affections were reciprocated by Elena. Despite Carl's best efforts to treat Elena, she died of terminal tuberculosis at her parents' home in Key West on October 25th, 1931. Kossel was inconsolable at the loss of his unrequited love. Not long after her death, he got permission from her family to take Elena's body and put it in a casket full of formaldehyde. He paid for the funeral expenses and talked her relatives into building a crypt with his own money. But for some strange reason, he ordered only one key to it, and that key was for himself. His daily visits to her crypt began to make people take notice. So one evening in April 1933, Tansler crept through the cemetery where Elena was buried and removed her body from the mausoleum. He was carting it through the cemetery after dark on a toy wagon, and he took it back to his home. His reasoning for doing this was uh, that he reported that Elena's spirit would come to him when he would sit by her grave and serenade her corpse with her favorite Spanish song. He also said that she would often tell him to take him from her grave. Then one day, Carl stopped visiting Elena's grave. Because old Von Kossel had stopped coming, many assumed that he had died. That was until he turned up in another part of town, having moved and bought a small house near the sea. This sudden change in routine surprised Elena's relatives, but they could have never even imagined the reason for the ceased visitation. Keeping to himself, Carl lived a private life for years, and neighbors only saw him when he went back and forth with large packages. They also said that they could hear him singing and playing his organ late into the night, but that he was always alone. In October of 1940, Elena's sister Florinda began hearing rumors of Carl sleeping with the disinterred body of her sister. Plus, the cemetery reported that Elena's casket was missing. So Florinda went ahead and confronted Carl at his home. When Florinda showed up at Carl's house, she demanded to know what happened to her sister, and Carl went ahead and showed her. Elena's corpse was indeed upstairs in his bed. Carl had attached the corpse of Elena's bones together with wire and coat hangers and fitted her face with glass eyes. As the skin of the corpse decomposed, Carl replaced it with silk cloth soaked in wax and plaster of Paris in a kind of death shroud. So as the hair fell out of the decomposing scalp, Carl fashioned a wig from Elena's hair that had actually been collected by her mother and given to him not long after Elena's burial in 1931. Well, Carl filled the corpse's abdominal and chest cavity with rags to keep its shape, but he also dressed Elena's remains in stockings, jewelry, and gloves, and he kept the body in his bed. He also used copious amounts of perfume, disinfectants, and preserving agents to mask the odor and stave off the effects of the corpse's decomposition. Florinda notified the authorities, and Carl was arrested and detained. After his arrest, Carl was psychiatrically examined and 
he was found mentally competent to stand trial on the charge of wantonly and maliciously destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization. So after a preliminary hearing on October 9th, 1940, at the Monroe County Courthouse in Key West, Carl was held to answer on the charge, but the case was eventually dropped and he was released as the statute of limitations on molesting a grave was only two years, and at this point, it had been seven years. So where is Elena during all of this? Shortly after her corpse's discovery by authorities, Elena's body was examined by physicians and pathologists and then put on public display at the Dean Lopez Funeral Home, where it was viewed by nearly 6,800 people. Uh, but Elena's body was eventually returned to the Key West Cemetery, where the remains were buried in an unmarked grave, supposedly encased in cement, in a secret location to prevent further tampering Separated from his obsession, Carl used a death mask to create a life-size effigy of Elena, and he supposedly lived with her until his death on July 3rd, 1952. His body was discovered on the floor of his home three weeks after his death. It has been recounted that Carl was found in the arms of Elena's effigy upon discovery of his corpse, but his obituary reported that he died on the floor behind one of his organs that he liked to play. The obituary recounted a metal cylinder on a shelf above a table. In it, wrapped in silken cloth and a robe, was a waxen image. Uh, it has also been reported that Carl had the body switched or that Elena's remains were secretly returned to him and that he died with the real body of Elena. Thank all of the gods, though, there is no evidence that the wax effigy of Elena found in the house at the time of his death contained bones or any other human material. There's nothing romantic about that. Welcome to Creepy Tapas, the show where two spooky best friends give you tiny tastes of terror connected by a common ingredient. We serve up movie reviews, mysteries, murder, mayhem, and tantalizing tales from the depths of the internet, and some random bullshit too, all focused around a similar theme. We blend our love of horror, oddities, and general creepiness, and dig a little deeper, discovering the history, psychology, and truth behind your wildest fears. Join us, Ash and Jordan, as we descend into full darkness every Sunday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Greetings, ghoul fiends. Tis I, Ash. And I'm Jordan. And we're here to talk about Valentine's. It's Valentine's. It's the time to tell somebody you love them, even if you don't. Maybe you'll get chocolate. Maybe you'll get wine. Maybe you will go out and have a good time. <laughs> yep. Valentine's. <laughs> Woo! Every year on February 14th, the world celebrates Valentine's Day. It's a time to celebrate love and romance, but the origins of this festival of candy and cupids is actually pretty dark and bloody. Animal sacrifices, random coupling, and the whipping of women. Not quite the lovey-dovey day that we celebrate now. So I'm sure most people believe that Valentine's Day has its roots in the Christian faith, considering the day is seemingly named after St. Valentine. Many historians believe that the day originated from the Roman pagan festival of fertility called Lupercalia. This was a major festival on the Roman calendar and was commemorated every year on February 13th through the 15th. It was held in honor of Faunus and Lupercus, the gods of agriculture and fertility. In the morning, the priests of Lupercus, known as Luperci, gathered at the Lupercal Cave, which lay at the foot of the Palatine Hill. In a ceremony for fertility, and because Lupercus was a god of shepherds, two male goats would be sacrificed in the cave. This was followed by the sacrifice of a dog to represent purification, because dogs often guard the flocks, and I'm not okay with that. Well, blood from 
in the sacrificial knife was then smeared across the foreheads of two naked Luperci. So after the blood face paint party, the knife was wiped clean with a piece of milk-soaked wool, which was meant to signify new life. And historians have suggested this ritual is why Valentine's Day is associated with the colors red and white. Red represents the blood from the sacrifice, which sounds like a Valentine's Day poem. Roses are red like the blood of the sacrifice. Violets are blue like your bruises. White represents the milk on the wool that wipes the knife clean. Think about that the next time you got, you decorate for Valentine's Day and you're like little red hearts and, and white. That's blood and milk. So a huge feast followed this ritual. And after everyone was thoroughly stuffed, the Luperci cut strips of skin from the sacrifi- sacrificed goats called thongs and dipped them in sacrificial blood. That's where the underwear comes from, I bet. That thong, the thong, thong, thong. Here comes the fun part. They then then ran naked through the streets of Rome and whipped any woman within striking distance. With bloody skin strips? Give her a quick whoosh. Just a quick whack. She'll love it's it. fine. She'll they did, it. I think. <laughs> I mean, you shit. You know, pre-feminism was hard. I am having difficulty conceiving. What can I do? Well, you can stand here and let us beat you with this bloody goat flesh. That'll help. That'll help. That'll help. It'll fix yeah. all your problems. <laughs> I'll magically go away. You'll become blessed with child. Full dong out. Just give her the slap with some bloody goat skin. Sounds awful. It does sound awful. <laughs> Many welcomed these lashings and often revealed bare skin for striking. Romans believed that the these beatings would make childless women more fertile while also blessing pregnant women with an easy birth. <laughs> Another custom during Lupercalia was the pairing of young Roman boys and girls. At some point during the festival, the names of young girls were written on bits of paper and slipped into a jar. Every young man would then pull out a girl's name and the pair would be coupled together for the rest of Lupercalia. It's like a fun little blind date bingo. That does not sound fun. Like throwing your name in a hat for some random person to pick out. (laughs) You don't think that's a meet cute? Some people fell in love and then they would stay together and then they get married, you know? Just worked out. You know, cosmic connection that never would have happened otherwise. Grandma, how'd you meet Grandpa? Well, he drew my name out of a hat. <laughs> Got me pregnant during Lupercalia, and that was it. It is not officially known whether the stories about St. Valentine were about one man or multiple men merged together. The most popular belief is that he was a priest in the Roman Empire during the 3rd century, and was executed under the command of Claudius II for performing marriages in secret after the emperor had outlawed them. The story goes that while awaiting his fate in prison, he fell in love with the jailer's daughter. After his sentence was decided, Valentine supposedly left a farewell note to the young lady and signed it from your Valentine. Then on the 14th of February, 269 AD, he exited the jail and walked towards the most unromantic of ends, death by beating and decapitation. As Christianity swept across the globe, many pagan traditions were absorbed and adapted into the Christian faith. In the 5th century, Pope Galatius I banned Lupercalia and declared February 14th a day to feast and celebrate the life of the martyred St. Valentine. The festival became more of a theatrical interpretation of what it had once been, but that didn't stop it from being a day of fertility and love. So like, if you're listening to this and you don't know already, all women ovulate on Valentine's Day. So I did a little deep dive about some of the three most popular presents that you get during Valentine's Day. The rose did not start its life as a symbol of romance. We're going to pop in the time machine. We're going to go back to Victorian England. It's probably actually not very good for either one of us. 
Women's roles were limited by social norms and customs, so women were only permitted to learn subjects that were deemed socially acceptable. The language of flowers, or floriography, was studied by most Victorian women and was basically really slow, cryptic text messaging. These messages would be sent to lovers, friends, and yes, even enemies. Imagine sending your enemy a bouquet of flowers. Penny royal in a bouquet often symbolized you must leave. Disdain for the recipient Rose meant perfect beauty on its own, but the red symbolized romance. So you can see how the recipient would read the red rose as being a romantic gesture. Although most of these secret messages faded away over time, we still use the red rose today to tell someone we want to smash. We have been using chocolate in relation to sexual desire and romance for over 5,000 years. The earliest documentation of it comes from the Mayans. The Mayans love drinking chocolate. They would grow and harvest cocoa beans, grind them into a paste, which was then mixed with chilies, cornmeal, and water. This chocolatey drink was used in religious ceremonies and as a dessert at the end of celebratory feasts. Mayans were the first culture to link chocolate with romantic love. The couple would sip the chocolatey concoction from a shared chalice during their wedding ceremony. So Aztecs created a similar beverage called Zocolotl, which contains cocoa, honey, and vanilla, which actually sounds friggin' delicious, and I'm tempted to order one the next time I go out for fancy coffee drinks. This was believed to give you special powers. It probably does. Chocolate makes you a superhero. So it was known to arouse severe passion and make you, like, incredibly amorous. King Montezuma II would partake in this ritual before entering his harem to stoke his libido, you know? The Greeting Card Association says the oldest known Valentine's Day card still exists to this day. It's a poem written by the Duke of Orleans. The Duke had a tragic life, wrought with grief like so many during that time. His first wife was lost during childbirth, and his family had mostly all died. Eventually, he was captured at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415 and sent to the Tower of London. He would spend 25 years in confinement. While he was a prisoner, he wrote many letters back home to his wife, as well as journals of poetry, which became progressively darker during his confinement. One such communication to his wife is the very first Valentine, and it goes, My very gentle Valentine, since for me you were born too soon, and I, for you, was born too late. God forgives him who has estranged me from you the whole year. I am already sick of love, my very gentle Valentine. Unfortunately, his wife would pass away in 1435, several years before Charles's release. She died childless while waiting for her husband to return to her. So, yeah, happy Valentine's Day. Hey, friend. I'm Keely. I am the host of a paranormal and true crime podcast called Missy Mysteries and a proud member of the Darkcast Network. Today, as love is in the air for this love-focused holiday, I'm pretty thankful I get to spend it with my spouse, but before him, like many of us, and probably some of you listening right now, I had my fair share of bad dates. For my story today, I'm telling you a mix of a couple of real-life bad dates and my imagination to bring you my bad date gone haunted story. Let's take a jump back to early 2019 when a 19-year-old me just entered the world of dating apps. I was on as many of the dating apps as I could think of, but I met this specific date on Bumble. Our plan was to meet at a restaurant after I got off of work that night. I normally tried to save dates for my days off, 
because at this point I worked at a doggy daycare and smelled like dog, especially after work on rainy days like this day. But this date was super stubborn about this specific day. And of course, he was the one who ran an hour late. But I still went through with the date. Odd to say the restaurant is where it went wrong when he was an hour late, but here is where it all went wrong. As we sat down, he made inappropriate comments about the waitress while still being rude to her. We obviously tried to make conversation before he made a comment about how I was devaluing myself with tattoos. This is honestly where I checked myself out of the date and noticed something really odd. The restaurant was full, even the table next to us. The table next to us had four adults and a baby, all eating, except for one woman sitting on the booth's bench in between our table and the next, almost like she was with their group, but she didn't quite fit at their table. This woman was sort of pale. She had longish red hair and dark brown eyes. She was dressed in a pretty simple outfit, blue jeans, a t-shirt, and black converse. The only thing off was that she looked kind of beat up. Her arms had bruises, she had a cut on her head, and her jeans were pretty dirty. She was just watching our table, never talking to anyone or eating anything. Nobody even seemed to know that she was there but me. I had this odd feeling, and I decided to ask my date if he believed in ghosts. Of course, he laughed at the idea, telling me how ridiculous this was and asking why every single woman he went out with asked him about ghosts. He laughed at how ridiculous the idea was, but talked about how whenever he was with women, especially if he took them home, things would fly off his shelves, water would turn on by itself, along with plenty other clear signs of being well haunted, but he had excuses for all of them. No matter what, though, he said, everyone eventually stopped coming around. This honestly could be his personality or the fact that he was haunted. But by this point, we had asked for our checks. I was ready to call it for the night for a lot of reasons, but used my school the next morning as my excuse when he asked if I wanted to extend our date. The biggest thing I noticed was the eye contact that the girl made with me when he was trying to convince me to make our date longer. She even followed us out, watching us from his back seat till he drove out of the parking lot. I decided to become the next ghost in his life, blocking him on everything, but not before finding out he had a missing ex-girlfriend who fit the description of the girl I saw, almost as if she was warning me and all the other women in his life about him. Hey everybody, this is Jamie and Josh from the Paranormal Peace Podcast, and tonight we have a story of love and heartbreak. Yeah, and from the wonderful state of Florida, we are going to talk about the Bellamy Bridge. Yeah, let's get right to it. The legend of Elizabeth Bellamy and her haunting of the bridge that bears her family name is one of heartache and tragedy. Young Elizabeth was engaged to be married to Dr. Samuel Bellamy, a politician, bank examiner and Jackson County planter. Their wedding was to take place in the backyard of a beautiful mansion that Samuel built for his wife to be. Picture, if you will, hundreds of guests from all over, including some from Europe, gathered in the rose garden of a picturesque mansion. The bride, beautiful in her extravagant wedding gown, smiling and happy as she stands in the front of a full yard of guests with the man that she loves. After the vows, a band plays as the happy couple makes their way down the aisle in the backyard, past family friends, and local dignitaries to the house. 
They wait inside the parlor as people start filing into the ballroom where the band has taken up in the corner of the room ready to play. The ornate double doors open as the butler announces the arrival of the new Mr. and Mrs. Samuel Bellamy. As the musicians start to play, the couple starts to dance their their first dance as husband and wife. The evening is one of grandeur and elegance as the food and drinks are served on elegant silver platters by the staff in black and white dress. The party doesn't seem to slow down as the night slowly drifts closer to the start of a new day, as the candles that surround the room bask the area in a soft, warming light. If you were to ask any of the guests later, no one is quite sure how the tragic events unfolded, but all they can remember is the horrific screams. As Elizabeth was dancing around the room, spinning and twirling, laughing and having the most wonderful time of her life. She was not aware of how close she was coming to the edge of the room. Her dress hits one of the tall candelabras, illuminating the room, knocking it to the ground. One of the candles falls not onto the floor, but instead onto her dress. The dress instantly catches fire and starts to spread. By the time Elizabeth notices, it's too late as the flames quickly move up the train and past her hips. She screams a high-pitched wail that will forever be etched in the minds of those that attended the event and runs out of the room, out of the house, into the rose garden. By the time her husband reaches her in the backyard, she is fully engulfed in flames. Throwing a vase of water and using his jacket, he is successful in extinguishing the flames. Samuel is surprised to find that his bride is still alive but terribly burned black over most of her body as the dress has fused with her skin in places. With help from some of the guests, they managed to bring Elizabeth into the room that would have served as her marital chambers. As the new day passes, Elizabeth screams in agony until sleep overtakes her, at times praying for the end to come quickly. Unfortunately, death does arrive, but not until a few days have passed. Her body was laid to rest in Samuel's brother's property near the Chipola River. The week that started with hope and happiness ended with heartbreak and anguish. It is said that on clear nights near the bridge that spans the Chipola River, not far from where Elizabeth was laid to rest, a woman in white walks the banks of the river. Sad. It's absolutely tragic. Yeah, I mean, they were very much in love. Yeah, I can't imagine a more heartbreaking event. Well, yeah, something that's meant to be the happiest time of your life, one of the happiest days, turns into one of the most tragic and sad. Yeah, it's horrible. And for your anniversary every year, you relive it. You're reminded of it. Yeah, that's not the way you want those things to go. No, but this story, the people in it are real, okay? They were actual people. However, it is mixed with legend, and that's not really what happened. Right, so what did happen to Elizabeth and Samuel Bellamy? Well, they did get married, but they got married in North Carolina. That's where they grew up. They known each other as kids. They had a young son, and they moved to Mariana, Florida. So they moved to the area. They moved to the area. They did not get married there. So then how did we come up with this? Where did this story come from? It had to come from somewhere. So a lot of people believe it came from this woman who wrote these books. Her name was Caroline Hintz, and she wrote books. But in her books, it's that same story, but it's of a slave woman that got married and she got married in a stately mansion because her owners held her in such high regard that she was married there and it is her that her dress caught fire and that's based on actual events but in another state it was not in florida at all and a lot of people believe that while people you know that while the books that this woman had wrote on these events on these true based on true events They've forgotten long about the books, and but the story seems to have, you know, imposed itself on uh, Elizabeth and Samuel and their story. So it's kind of like a mix of the two. 
That's interesting. Kind of morphed into one. Yeah. Yeah. So Elizabeth really died of malaria, and her and Samuel's young son died a week later of malaria as well. And she is buried in Mariana, Florida. She is. So is that her really her ghost? You know, I would believe, because look at the way it all ended for her, I mean, in the story. But even if she died of malaria, right, when she died... Her son was still alive, and of course her husband, because he he recovered from malaria. Right. So, yeah, she lost. You know, they. You know, it was just they were very much in love, and he Samuel never got over the loss of his wife and son. I mean, he went on, but he turned to drugs and alcohol, and eventually he committed suicide. Which is still like that's the true story, and that is still it's horribly it was tragic. horrible and tragic because when Elizabeth died, she was only eighteen. That's very young. And her son, Alexander, was only, I think, 18 months old. So he was very young as well. Yeah, that's that's all really young. It's all very young. So very, very tragic. I, I believe I believe she could walk those banks over there in Mariana by the, the Bellamy Bridge. I believe so, too. I believe that the ghost sightings, I, I believe, are real. Mm-hmm. I do, too. They may not necessarily be appointed to the correct person. Yeah. But the story is that of love and tragedy. Love and loss. Love and loss. True love and, yeah, and and the tragic loss of it. So hopefully they're together now. Yes. You know, um, it is said because Samuel committed suicide that he was not able to be buried within, like, the, the church grounds and all that stuff because suicide was Considered a, at, a yeah. mortal sin. Yeah, so they say he's forever cursed to wander looking for his wife and child. But I, what I hope is I hope that they are together. Yeah. I hope that they are all together. So. Keeps the tragedy. Yes, but you a you, better. you can look up on YouTube and Bellamy Bridge in Mariana, Florida. There's videos. Look it up online. There's pictures of the Bellamy Bridge. You know, it, it's just an old frame of a bridge anymore. It used to be wooden. It's it's metal now. It was replaced in you know 1900 and something. And but yeah, you can find pictures. You can find pictures with little streaks, orange streaks and white balls of light through it. You can visit it. There's there's the Bellamy Trail that went in there. So, I believe there's tours. So, yeah. Just be careful. There are it is Florida. It is by water. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's gators. I'm sure. So, everybody, stay ghosty. Hi, this is Kiki, the producer and chief researcher of the Pennsylvania-based podcast Mission Spooky. I'm usually joined by my host, JC, a former paranormal investigator, and my co-host, Cord, a former ghost chaser and professional wrestler. Every other week, we dive into some disturbing subjects, such as ghostly encounters, weird legends of the Northeast, and even some true crime connected to paranormal activity. Today is a special Valentine's Day love story about a fanciful yet cold and calculating girl of privilege and the unfortunate man she seduced into killing her equally unfortunate husband. This tragedy is often referred to as the Cherry Hill murder. Elsie Lansing began her troublesome ways at a young age. According to family records, she had lost both her father and mother before the age of 15. Abraham Lansing, her uncle, became her guardian, and she was the sole heir to his estate. According to Robert, Elsie spent most of her time gallivanting with her friends. She would invite them through a little traversed rear entrance to play in the stables in the backyard. 
This doesn't seem to be a terrible offense, but for a young girl who was to inherit a large sum of money, it appears that Uncle Abe expected more from his young ward. He became so distressed that she chose to neglect her studies and run amok that he began nailing her windows and door shut. Rarely was she left alone for too long, someone always watching her every move to keep her in line, which led to an extreme decision. John Whipple boarded next door to her uncle's home. He and Elsie became friends, and then according to Robert Lansing, Elsie attached herself to him in a, quote, lecherous fashion. John Whipple would find himself madly in love with the 15-year-old and devise a plan for her escape, which included running away and eloping with him. Robert Lansing recalled how he and his brother tried to stop the elopement from happening. But in the end, they knew the marriage had probably taken place the evening before in Troy, New York, and so there was no sense in running after the two lovers. Abraham Lansing was not a happy man at this point. His protege, having married Whipple, nine years older than herself, was now on her, quote, own, but rather than her inheriting his fortune, Mr. Whipple was now in charge of it by way of the marriage. He naturally accused John of marrying Elsie for the money and having no real interest in her happiness. In due course, the Whipples found themselves moving to the beautiful and prestigious home known as Cherry Hill in Albany, New York. Cherry Hill was the family residence of the Von Rensselaers. While the Whipples and Abraham resided here, there were at least 14 other people living in the home, including Philip and his family, servants, and workers. By this time, John Whipple has also proven himself to be an amazing and hardworking husband and a businessman. He took Elsie's inheritance, and from what family records indicate, rather than spend it frivolously, he had grown it into a small fortune. John was the captain and owner of a sloop and had been traveling between Albany and New York City as a merchant's vessel. Living at Cherry Hill meant that Elsie was never alone while he was away, and she would always have help in raising their first child, a son. It would seem that both John and Elsie should be happy with this arrangement. Elsie would destroy this perceived happiness. She began a new relationship with a man hired to work at Cherry Hill named Joseph Orton. When Orton arrived at Cherry Hill, the Rensselaers thought they knew everything there was to know about him, but he did have some secrets of his own to keep. Some accounts suggest that Orton had seen Elsie before taking the job at Cherry Hill. Either way, an intense affair between the two begins with a string of letters back and forth delivered by servants and sometimes the Van Rensselaer children. By the spring of 1827, Elsie and Joseph began to construct a plan to run away together. Elsie decided they needed at least $1,200 to begin a new life, but her husband had total control over her money. She decided to take matters into her own hands and bought arsenic in Albany. John enjoyed a tonic every day, and Elsie thought that administering the arsenic in his drink would undoubtedly kill him. Naturally, Elsie doesn't want to be implicated in her husband's death, and there are some conflicting records about whether or not she or Joseph asked a one Dinah Jackson the last slave working under the Van Rensselaers, to administer the poison to John for her. Regardless, the poison does not work. It results only in cramps and stomach issues for John. Not only that, but since Elsie was in charge of making the tonic each day, John may have suspected something was amiss, as he demanded that both she and her son drink the same tonic. With arsenic not being sufficient, the treacherous couple contemplated hiring a contract killer from Montreal, 
cost of $300 was well out of Joseph's pay scale of only $13 a month, and so that idea was quickly eliminated. It is finally decided that Joseph will have to kill John himself if he wants to be with Elsie. The couple decides to start some rumors that someone connected to the canal construction wants John Whipple dead. Joseph even goes so far as to tell everyone in the house that he's seen strange and dangerous-looking men lurking around the property. On May 7th, 1827, around 9 p.m., John Whipple was sitting at his desk, putting paperwork in order for his departure from Albany, possibly to discuss canal business. As John arose from his desk, back turned to the window, a shot rang out, shattering the glass. According to Abraham von Rensselaer, John exclaimed, My God, what was that? and made for the door at the head of the stairs. He descended only a few steps before he fell backward, dead. The ball from the shot had cut through his left clavicle, struck an artery of the heart, and bounced into his right lung, lodging itself there. In all the confusion, no one in the household was able to ascertain exactly what had happened, nor did they attempt to chase after any culprit. At one point, von Rensselaer's deliberately instructed no one in the family to go outside, nor did they send anyone to check for intruders because they were fearful someone else would be shot and killed. When the family and workers decided it was safe enough for anyone to leave the house, the police and coroner were finally fetched. There was clear evidence that someone had used crates to ascend to the roof of the woodshed in the rear of the house, overlooking the room in which John was shot. At the time the gun was fired, the killer would not have been more than three or four yards from the victim. In the darkness, the killer could easily see their prey inside the lit room, while no one inside the room would have been able to see the intruder. The killer was also barefoot, and the tracks could be traced along the roof of the shed and from some distance from the house. The coroner began the inquest in which all the able-bodied men of the house tried to ascertain how John died and exactly what had happened. Joseph Orton is among those men in the inquest. However, Joseph is a bit too helpful. In his attempt to feign distress over John's death, he gives away a bit too much. With almost 20 people living at Cherry Hill, the affair the couple thought was so secret was actually noticed by more than they thought. With a small hill of then circumstantial and yet compelling evidence, two days after the inquest, Joseph Orton was arrested for the murder of John Whipple. Joseph, perhaps truly in love with Elsie, admitted to the whole affair, including that it was he that constructed the entire murder plot. Rather than attempt to save Joseph from swinging alone, Elsie immediately said, yes, the whole murder was his alone and that she had nothing to do with any of the murder plot nonsense. As the trial began, Joseph is forced to reveal his huge secret, one that he may have told Elsie, and that is that his real name is Jesse Strang. He had abandoned a wife and children, leaving them behind to start a new life in Ohio. There, he eventually faked his own death and took on the new identity of Joseph Orton. Unfortunately, this only makes him appear to be more guilty of constructing a murder plot while making Elsie look like she's been taken in by a nefarious thief only after her money and power. At least, that's how the court is going to see it. During his trial, Jesse Strang told his side of the story, implicating Elsie almost every step of the way. It is she who devised the poison plot, although he says that he bought the arsenic. She tried to give him a pistol to shoot her husband. Strang admits to preferring rifles and ultimately purchasing a $25 flintlock in order to do the deed. She has him practice shooting through glass, as it was her idea to have him shoot from the woodshed roof through the window. 
She bought him socks so his shoe prints would not be traced. Strang explained how he jumped off the shed and ran into the ravine behind the house to bury the rifle. He put his coat and boots on outside and snuck back into the house where he pretended to be shocked that John Whipple had been killed. He was the one sent to get the coroner and was then sworn in as a member of the inquest. Jesse Strang is sentenced to death by hanging. Elsie's trial was the next day, and she was charged with accessory before the murder. Her relative, Solomon von Rensselaer, was a politician and general in the War of 1812. He spoke on her behalf and basically suggested that she was not capable of constructing such a heinous and calculated crime. Dinah Jackson, now a free woman, was allowed to testify that indeed Elsie did have something to do with the poison plot long before the shooting. However, her testimony will not be taken seriously either. As Robert Lansing put it, quote, Mrs. Whipple then went scot-free, but the prevailing opinion was entertained that she was equally guilty and ought to have suffered the severe penalty of the law. I was at the trial, end quote. Jesse Strang would hang alone on August 24th, 1827, a crowd of at least 30,000 appearing to watch. Unfortunately, Strang's hanging was butchered. The fall did not break his neck, and he suffered greatly, slowly suffocating for just over a half an hour. This would be the last public execution in Albany. Elsie eventually remarried a man named Nathaniel Freeman, but he died suddenly. She would only live five years total after Strang's death. Thus concludes your very special Valentine's Day love story gone terribly wrong. Or does it? Today, Cherry Hill stands as a historic site. It's lovely yellow wood planking glowing in the summer sun. But every once in a while, even during those beautiful hot summer days, a cold chill lingers in the upstairs room. Is it John Whipple? Wandering the hallway trying to figure out what happened to him on that terrible night? Or is it Jesse Strang, just outside the window, gazing in and contemplating the poor life choice that led him to the hangman's noose? Thank you for joining me today, and thanks for listening to all the stories in our special Dark Cast tribute to Valentine's Day. Mission Spooky can be found on all podcast platforms, and we hope you give us a listen in the future. As I always say, stay spooky and don't die. But if you do, contact us. Hey, this is Dana from The Crime Diner. We are a Jersey podcast, and and we tell stories with a variety of true crimes, cults, mysteries, historical hilarities, and sometimes victim stories. And we like to do this within a dinner with friends theme. Today, I'd like to share with you a little sampling of what you might get on our podcast and tell you the story of the kiss and kill murder. Elizabeth Jean Betty Williamson was a high school student ahead of her time in Odessa, Texas in 1961. She was not very popular. She had some very forward-thinking views for the time, being anti-segregation and pro-sexual freedom. She was a talented actress who wanted to eventually star on Broadway. She met a very conventionally popular and attractive boy named John Mack Herring. They started a little fling in the summer of 1960. While she was thrilled about the romance, he wanted to keep it a secret. They broke it off and Betty was distraught. She had a plan that if she got with one of his friends, that she would make him jealous. But Mac wasn't jealous and he just ended things permanently with her. She was so upset that she asked some of her friends to help her die. And they mostly thought that she was just being dramatic. So on the morning of March 22nd, 1961, police took a call from Betty's mother, reporting that her daughter had not come home from a high school play rehearsal. 
Police started their investigation at school, talking to friends and teachers. The night she disappeared, Betty had gone out with another man. When he dropped her off, he spotted Herring's car in the alleyway behind Betty's house. Investigators brought Herring in for questioning, and within 45 minutes, he told them the whole story. He said that Betty had been begging him to help her end her life. She seemed so miserable, so he decided to do what she asked. After rehearsal, he drove home, grabbed his shotgun, rope, and lead weights. Around midnight, he picked her up in the alley. She was wearing pink shorty pajamas and a duster. He said that the conversation was light and cheerful, and then they drove to the spot Herring had chosen, a stock pond on property his family leased about 25 miles north of Odessa. As they walked to the pond, they talked about how happy she would be in heaven, he told police. I just stood there with a gun. I said, give me a kiss to remember you by. She gave me a kiss, and then she said, thank you, Mac. I will always remember you for that. Then she said, now. Herring said he raised the barrel of the gun up to her head. She grabbed it and held it to her temple, and I just pulled the trigger. She was dead, like that, and snapped his fingers. After tying two lead weights around her waist, he dragged her to the center of the pond and let her go. Herring led police to the murder scene. He waded into the pond, grabbed the corpse by the feet, and dragged her out to the water's edge. The coroner ruled that her death was caused by a shotgun blast that partially decapitated her. It looked like an open and shut case for the handsome football player, but his lawyer filed a motion for a separate trial to determine if his client had been temporarily insane, unable to distinguish right from wrong. Innocence or guilt would not be considered at the trial, only his mental state. If the jury found him insane at the moment of the murder, he'd go free, and the judge granted this motion. On the first day, the defense introduced a letter that Herring handed to his father just before he was arrested. It was in Betty's handwriting saying, I want everyone to know that what I am about to do no way implicates anyone else. I say this to make sure that no blame falls on anyone other than myself. She said that she was waging a war within herself and, quote, I fear I am losing the battle. Herring, she wrote, had graciously consented to help her beat a quick retreat into no man's land of death. The defense calls family and friends and expert witnesses. Dr. Martin Grice, a local psychiatrist, declared that Herring was dethroned of his reason by a gross stress disorder. Grice said that he became mixed up and so sick that he felt pulling the trigger was what he should do for her. After nearly 11 hours of deliberation, the jury determined that Herring was insane at the time of the murder. The Texas Supreme Court later reversed the decision, which meant that he would have to face another jury. In that second trial, he was also acquitted. Mac remained in Odessa, did not lose any social status from the event, and instead the town gossip maligned Betty, accusing her of leading him astray. She became known as the Ghost of Odessa High. For years, people believed that a specter of a pretty blue-eyed blonde would appear if you parked in front of the school's auditorium at midnight and flashed your headlights, honked your horns, and called her name. The ritual became so popular that the school officials had to paint over and seal the auditorium windows. Mac became an electrician and lived an uneventful life in Odessa until 2019 when he died at the age of 75. Hey y'all, I'm Gina. And I'm Amber. And we're the hosts of the Weird True Crime Podcast. We share cases, tales, and spooky stories that make you question just about everything. 
Find us on your favorite podcast app and be sure to follow us on social media at Weird True Crime. This Valentine's Day case is anything but romantic and oh so weird. Around 9.30 p.m., Stacy Sheck calls 911 screaming that something terrible has happened. She was supposed to meet up with her husband Richard for a romantic Valentine's Day tryst at a secluded park, but when she arrives, she finds him lying on the ground outside of his truck, shot. This was just the latest in a long string of losses in Stacy's life. After losing her father at a young age, she spent most of her life looking for a man's love. She eloped with her high school sweetheart, but quickly divorced. She then remarried at the age of 20 and had her first son, Dylan. The young family moved to Florida, but Stacy and her husband divorced within two years. Determined to make a life for herself and her young son, she put herself through school and got a degree in nursing. Stacy continued to date while working full-time as a pediatric nurse. In 1996, she married her third husband, but the marriage was short-lived and ended after only six weeks. In 1998, a brief relationship resulted in the birth of her second son. While taking care of two young children, she managed to make quite a life for herself. She took a high-paying job at a spinal clinic in Atlanta, making six figures per year. She owned multiple properties and held a lot of clout in her office. Despite her success, she still missed male companionship and married her fourth husband in 2001. They moved to Snellville, Georgia, and had another son. Though successful personally and professionally, Stacy was feeling unsettled and separated from husband number four by 2004. It was then that she met Richard Sheck, a patient at her practice. He was a hopeless romantic and quickly fell for Stacy's charms. As soon as her fourth divorce was finalized, he moved in with Stacy and her small children. Richard was described as a lover of life. He was a balloonist. He loved hot air balloons. Richard was an adventurous guy, and he extended that zest for life to Stacy and her three boys. Stacy and Richard eloped in 2007 and announced the marriage to friends and family upon their return. He was an all-around good guy and took an interest in his stepson's lives, eventually adopting them as his own. Their lives were seemingly perfect until that fateful night. On Valentine's Day 2010, Stacy and Richard made sure to take time out of their busy schedules to celebrate the romantic holiday together. It was Stacy's weekend to help take care of her elderly grandparents, so Richard stopped by their house around 5.30 for dinner. They were going to rendezvous at Belton Bridge Park in Northern Hall County later that night to exchange their Valentine's Day presents. Richard left for the park while Stacy stayed behind at the house to wait for the night nurse to arrive for her grandparents. She left the house around 9.20 after the night nurse arrived and headed to meet him. When she pulled up, she noticed Richard's truck sitting there but immediately felt something was wrong. The truck was running, the door was open, and the headlights were on. After Stacy called 911 in hysterics and asked for help, deputies raced to the scene. It was then they discovered 46-year-old Richard Sheck shot dead outside of his truck. He had been shot three times in the chest and abdomen and twice in the face. Investigators found three sets of tire tracks at the scene. One belonged to Richard's truck, another belonged to Stacy's car, and a third set of tracks had come and gone before Stacy arrived. They could determine that the tracks were left by Goodyear Integrity Tires but had no vehicle to match the tires with. The initial thought was that the third set of tracks belonged to the killer and they were looking at a potential robbery. 
But a closer investigation showed that Richard had been shot six times and his wallet, wedding band, and watch were still on him when he was found. However, due to the remote location, there was a possibility that he drove up on something he wasn't supposed to see and was killed because he was a witness. During her statement to the investigators, it was revealed that Stacy had been having an affair with a man from her work named Juan Reyes. The relationship between Juan and Stacy seemed serious as Juan and his family were living in a house owned by Stacy and Richard. She was also paying for his cell phone and the truck that he was driving. Interestingly, the pair had vacationed together in Las Vegas just three weeks before the murder. Stacy told investigators that she and Juan had even talked about being together in the future once her kids were out of school. Police rightfully questioned if Juan had anything to do with Richard's murder, but she outright denied it. The police went to Juan's house at 4 a.m. to question his involvement in Richard's murder, but despite their banging and knocking on all the doors and windows, Juan never answered the door. The following morning, they found him at his workplace and took him to the station for questioning. Reyes openly admitted to the affair with Stacy, but denied any involvement in Richard's murder. He was under the impression that Stacy and Richard had an open relationship and he had been at home all night with his family in Atlanta. Reyes' ex-wife, who was living at the house at the time and trying to reconcile, confirmed his alibi and the police were able to rule him out as a suspect. With nothing else to go on, investigators pulled the phone records for the cell phone tower closest to the park where Richard was killed. Since it was a pretty isolated location, there weren't many calls going through the tower, which made it easy to cross-reference the calls made around the time of the murder with Stacy and Juan's phones. The records pointed them to a man who went by the nickname Mr. Results. Mr. Results was actually a personal trainer named Reginald Coleman. He did, however, have a criminal record. He had moved to Atlanta to reinvent himself. When questioned about his whereabouts and phone calls at the time, Reginald told investigators that he had been calling a woman he had been dating, Juanita Ross. While Reggie calling his girlfriend wouldn't normally be a big deal, police discovered an interesting connection. Stacy Sheck was Lenitra's supervisor at the clinic where they had both worked. Not only did Lenitra work for Stacy, but she also rented one of Stacy's many properties and the two had become friends. With this newfound connection under their belts, investigators pulled Lenitra's cell phone records and found that she had spoken with Mr. Results on the night of Richard's murder. She sent a text to Stacy that read, quote, Hope you have a happy Valentine's Day, end quote. The investigator suspected this was code for communicating the job was done. To add more fuel to the fire, Lieutenant Dan Franklin received a call from an IT guy at the DeKalb Medical Center where Stacy worked. His job was to clear out the junk emails from employees' email accounts, and he noticed that when he went to clear out Stacy's, he found it odd that her email account had been completely cleared out for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the weekend of the murder. The police got a warrant for her emails and found two emails from Stacy to her bank asking for money to be transferred from a real estate account to Lenitra Ross to, quote, pay for home repairs, end quote, just days before the murder. Investigators spoke with Ross, who, as we stated earlier, was renting a house from Stacy, and she confirmed the money, which amounted to $8,900, had been for repairs to the home. 
bank records showed that Lenitra had actually transferred the money to Mr. Results, but while the money trail led to Reggie, the tire tracks found at the scene did not. In May of 2010, Stacy's cousin, Connie Hearn, noticed that their grandparents' car was missing. She reached out to Lieutenant Franklin and informed him that at the time of Richard's murder, her grandparents' vehicle had been missing. The vehicle in question, the Chevrolet Impala, had been given to Stacy for her to sell to use the money for her grandparents' medical expenses. Unfortunately, according to Connie, they never saw a dime of the supposed $14,000 Stacy said she received from selling the car. Investigators found the car parked at Lenitra Ross's house with Goodyear Integrity tires on it. Confident he found the vehicle involved in the murder, Lieutenant Franklin could now place Reginald Coleman at the scene thanks to the tire tracks and his phone records. However, when he was arrested and brought in for questioning on May 25, 2010, he denied all involvement in the murder plot. Lenitra was arrested a few hours later but refused to turn on her friend. Her admittance didn't matter, though, because the text messages, tire tracks, and money trail all led back to Stacy. That same day, just two days after she spread Richard's ashes from a hot air balloon, investigators arrived at the clinic where she worked with a warrant for her arrest. Prosecutors found her to be intelligent, manipulative, and a borderline sociopath. When confronted with the possibility that this could be a death penalty case, Stacy started talking and her defense attorney started looking for a deal. In return for a plea deal, she turned on Lenitra and Reginald. During Lenitra's trial, Stacy took the stand and claimed Richard was molesting her middle child. She claimed she had gone through so many divorces because of her own sexual abuse as a child and had issues finding trust in men. When she discovered her own son was being abused, she decided that Richard needed to be taken off the face of the earth. This is when she enlisted the help of Lenitra and her on-and-off-again boyfriend, Mr. Results. She gave Reginald the down payment of $8,900 with the promise that Lenitra could have the house she was currently renting from Stacy. Lenitra and Reginald stood to gain around $100,000 total for the murder of Richard Sheck. With everything set, Stacy lured Richard out to the secluded park with the promise of a romantic rendezvous. But when Richard arrived, he was greeted by Reginald instead. Lenitra's defense argued that Stacy was making up the story to throw their client under the bus. Regardless, Lenitra was found guilty of first-degree murder and she received life without the possibility of parole. Worried about his own fate, Reginald Mr. Results Coleman decided to plead guilty to murder. He also received life without the possibility of parole. On December 3, 2012, Stacy Sheck pled guilty to first-degree murder, admitting she was the mastermind behind the plot to kill her fifth husband. Though she stuck by the abuse claims in court, Stacy told Richard's sister she killed him because she was worried that if they divorced, she would lose custody of her sons due to the legal adoption. When interviewed, her son stated that he had never been abused by Richard or told his mother that he was being abused. Investigators also found no proof of abuse between Richard and his adopted sons. Prosecutors argued that Stacy made up the claims to get away with murdering him. The court agreed and sentenced her to life without the possibility of parole. To this day, she states she truly believes her son was being abused and regrets not stopping the murder plot. 
Despite her regret, her own family says Stacy is right where she needs to be. Just goes to show that no matter how happy and perfect everything seems on the outside, you never truly know what's really going on. Hello, this is Nidia of The Crime Diner. We are a Jersey podcast, and every week we serve up a variety of true crime, cults, mysteries, historical hilarities, and sometimes victim stories. We do this within a Dinner with Friends theme. This is a charcuterie of the kinds of stories that you'll find on our podcast. It was Valentine's Day 2001, and like every dutable husband in love, Dr. John Hamilton ordered an expensive bouquet of flowers for his wife, Susan. She would never live to see them. On this day, the residents of Oklahoma City bore witness to a terrifying murder when Susan Hamilton was found strangled and beaten to death on her bathroom floor. Coming home between surgeries, the good doctor allegedly found his wife dead in a pool of her own blood. She had been strangled with two of his own neckties, and her skull had been beaten so badly that pieces of her brain were exposed. Dr. Hamilton frantically called 911, claiming that he had found his wife of about 14 years dead on the bathroom floor. First responders found Susan Hamilton to be completely naked, lying in a pool of her own blood on the bathroom floor. At that point, all the skeletons in their closets were released. By their friends' accounts, Susan and John Hamilton had a happy marriage. To the outside world, their marriage was perfect, and neighbors even testified that the two were very much in love. But as investigators dug deeper, they found some suspicious clues that made Dr. Hamilton their prime suspect. Firstly, there was this note that his wife wrote him in his Valentine's Day card. I bought my cards two weeks ago, so I guess maybe they don't seem as appropriate now, but I do love you. Have a good day, Susan. Some of Susan's family confirmed that she was considering divorce after discovering him making sordid phone calls with a stripper. Further investigation also revealed that John and Susan were involved in a dispute regarding money. Still, John's friends and colleagues refused to believe that he was capable of such violence. Then, to complicate the matter further, the police found traces of blood and flesh in Dr. Hamilton's car. His excuse was that he had attempted to perform CPR on his wife when he found her. They also found Susan's jewelry hidden in an underwear drawer, almost as if someone had wanted the police to think a robbery had taken place. So with a solid motive and forensic evidence collect connecting the doctor to the crime, detectives arrested John and charged him with the murder. Although most evidence seemed inconclusive in John Hamilton's trial, the prosecutors allege that the doctor had blood splatters inside his shirt cuffs which was only possible if he had murdered his wife with his own hands. After an expert witness testified that the blood spatters on Dr. Hamilton's sleeve were consistent with someone beating his wife, the jury convicted him of murder in less than two hours. As a result, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and currently remains incarcerated at the Dick Connor Correctional Center in Hominy, Oklahoma. Sadly, dessert is gone and the stories are done, which means our not-so-sweet sweetheart's date has come to an end. 
We hope you had a great time with us, and if it left you wanting more, check us all out on the Darkcast Network by visiting our website and listening to all of the amazing podcasts you heard during these episodes. We here at the Darkcast Network hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day and look forward to seeing you at our next Darkcast gathering.